It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Welcome to the Danny Klinkscale Reasonably Irreverent Podcast. Insightful and witty commentary, probing interviews, and detours from the beaten path. Welcome to Kansas City Profiles, presented by Easton Roofing, and a heartfelt, emotional, and revealing conversation with Mike Sweeney. Enjoyable, too, to say the least. He's one of the nicest guys you're ever going to meet. The Royals Hall of Famer carved out a great career in Major League Baseball. On the fighting through injuries late in his career, he put up astounding numbers for a five- or six-year stretch for the Kansas City Royals. Humble beginnings to his baseball career, to say the least, as a 10th-round draft choice. One of eight children who, at one point, said he just wanted to emulate his dad, who played a year of minor league baseball before giving up his dream to raise those eight children. Said he just wanted to have a couple of years in pro ball and say that he did what his dad did. Well, he did a whole lot more and became, as I said, a Royals Hall of Famer on some really bad teams oftentimes that he had to carry. Uh, There was some promising times in the early 2000s when a young core of Royals players looked like they might create something, but it never really came to fruition. A man of strong Catholic faith, he always has been somebody who has been involved in his community, be it out in California or in this Kansas City area. He was a big part of a time where the Royals needed a smiling face and a good guy to represent their franchise and he's certainly all of that it's a great story of an interesting childhood an interesting family uh, and just an interesting person and an interesting baseball story it's well told of course with a bounce and a smile by mike sweeney kansas city profile presented by easton roofing more of danny's reasonably irreverent podcast after this Hey Kansas City, Joe Spiker, Easton Roofing here. This happens all the time. I had a homeowner call me because a roofing company talked him into submitting a claim for hail damage. The claim was not denied, but all the insurance paid for was cosmetic damage to the roof. Of course, there was no damage to the roof that mattered. The roofing company was just doing what most do, turn it in and hope to get lucky, with no thought to the consequences they leave behind for the homeowner. The homeowner asked me what to do, and unfortunately, he was stuck paying his deductible for a bunch of unnecessary repairs. Because if he doesn't get it fixed, the insurance won't cover his roof anymore. Turning in an insurance claim is not something to do willy-nilly. It is a serious procedure that requires serious people to help you through the process. That's why you should never turn in an insurance claim without having Eastern Roofing take a look first, for free, and keep you from filing erroneous insurance claims that can hurt you in the end. Eastern Roofing. Integrity matters. It's great to be back with Dr. Brad Woodle from Advanced Sports and Family Chiropractic and Acupuncture with eight convenient locations all around Kansas City. And as the weather gets better and gets warmer and gets more delightful, there are some downsides too, and you have the therapies for that. It is allergy time. As spring starts to come, so does the pollen. And we know that acupuncture has a tremendous effect in releasing pressures that we get in our sinuses and toning down the immune response to those allergens outside in the environment. And also, people are want to get out 
and move about a little bit more too. You got it. Through acupuncture and also chiropractic, we can help to remove inflammation, get the body moving again, and make sure you're balanced and ready to take on this summer. To feel improved body, mind, and spirit and learn much more, you can visit asfca.com slash Danny. That's asfca.com slash Danny. If you'd like to join these and other great sponsors and market your business to a growing and engaged audience, contact us at Danny at DannyClinkScale.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Mike, you're from a big family in California. Tell me where you were in the lineup of eight Sweeney's and what it was like to be a little Mike Sweeney in Southern California in the seventies. <laughs> yeah. So growing up, uh, in Southern California, I was the second oldest of eight children. Right. And, uh, you know, people ask me, when did your love of baseball, when did your love of God begin? And from the stories that my parents tell me, it uh, began on the day that I was born back July 22nd, 1973. Uh, if I rewind a little bit, my, my father was a star athlete in uh, Orange County, uh, set the track and field records at the uh, prestigious modern day high school and uh, he high jumped six, eight, ran a nine, nine hundred. Wow. Um, you know, he was a great athlete, uh, set all the records for basketball and was playing actually minor league baseball with the uh, California Angels back then. And uh, when my mother, who was a high school senior, became uh, pregnant with the first of the eight children. So my dad you know, knew that back then minor league players were only making a few hundred bucks a month. He said, you know what, um, my job is to provide for the family and I'm going to come home and start driving a beer truck and uh, hopefully allow my, my beautiful wife and our future children's dreams to come true while sacrificing my own. So now you fast forward a, a year and a half, two years to the, uh, the day of my birth, and I was two months premature, and um, I, my mom and dad gave birth to their first baby boy, and uh, according to my parents, the story is, you know, my lungs were underdeveloped. I was just four pounds, and um, the doctors told my parents it didn't look that, that I was going to be a healthy, uh, healthy baby. In fact, they gave me a 50-50 chance of making it through the night. So my parents did two things. Uh, number one, my dad asked the doctors if he took one of his baseball bats, if he could have it sanitized and uh, laid next to me in my incubator. And he said, he, you know, he'd always jumped to having a little boy. And, um, you know, although his, this little baby boy's life was in jeopardy, he uh, felt, you know, that's his little slugger and, and wanted a baseball bat laid next to his little four pound body. And number two, my parents said, you know, if, if our little boy is not going to make it through the night, we want him to die a Christian. So they asked uh, their local Catholic priest to come and baptize um, me as a, you know, just a, a baby that was about 10 hours old. Well, my mom sat in the room and prayed and cried and hoped for the best. And my dad actually sat on the street corner uh, up until the sun came up around five in the morning. And he, he prayed like crazy to God and, Ironically, I was uh, born at UC Irvine Medical Center in Orange, California, only about a mile away from the Big A, where my dad most likely would have played had he not given up his dreams um, to sacrifice for our family. So when the sun came up, my dad was done crying. He was done praying and uh, went into the, uh, the hospital and waited for the doctor. And they gave my parents the most uh, joyful news when they said, OK, number one, uh, so I don't know what happened. Uh, between last night and this morning, but a miracle has taken place. 
Uh, looks like your baby boy's going to live. Um, it's going to be an uphill battle. And something miraculous happened uh, between last night and this morning, and your little boy's going to be okay. So, um, you know, growing up, the second oldest of uh, the, the children in our family, my dad taught me the, the great game of baseball. And ever since I was a little boy, my favorite thing to do was to catch with my dad. And, um, you know, the, the, the glue that held our family together was going to mass together on Sundays. So I think that started <laughs> on the day that I was born. That's a pretty cool story, to say the least. Uh, now, obviously, you come from uh, great stock. So when did you start to realize that? Well, first of all, what was it? I, I grew up in a big family, and we my, we had six, but we my mom said, that's, that's, a, that's it. We're not. So we had six in ten, 10 years. So I know what a rambunctious you know family with six kids in 10 years. So you had eight. I know kind of what that's yep. like, but uh, just describe what it's like to have uh, be in a family that big. Well, you know what? I, I love growing up in a big family because uh, I never felt like I had to go out of the house to be entertained. I, I never had a boring day. Uh, I felt like I woke up with my best friends. Uh, my mother was always the feminine role model of, of giving us boys in the family an example of the type of woman that we aspired to marry. And our father was the hardest working, most loving uh, man towards my mom and us children that we could have ever asked for as a father. And he gave us an example of the type of man that we would hopefully someday grow into. So growing up in a big family, we always had a, someone to play catch with, uh, someone to you know, watch cartoons with, play Monopoly with. Uh, it was just, uh, it was a dream come true growing up in the family that I grew up in. When, as I mentioned, you have uh, come from uh, uh, an athletic family and your dad was a great athlete, when did you realize that you had some aptitude for the game and did you play other games? Well, I, I played a ton of other sports. You know, I played soccer, basketball, football. Um, I even raced BMX bicycles. But uh, baseball was always my first love and it was always something that I loved to do. And looking back, one of the greatest moments of my life was you know, um, go into the batting cages that my godfather owned. It's called Home Run Park uh, on Beach Boulevard, uh, right next to, uh, you know, up the street from Huntington Beach and just down the streets from Knott's Berry Farm and Amusement Park. <laughs> and I was, I think I was four years old, and I'll, I'll never forget it. It's one of my earliest childhood memories. And my dad, who I'm, I'm proudly named after, he's Mike Sr., said, little Mikey, um, we're going to go to the cages, your godfather's batting cage, and we're going to teach you how to hit in the cages today. And I hit off a tee, and I'd hit some wiffle balls that my dad had pitched me, but I never hit off a machine. So I, I went into the 50-mile-an-hour, um, you know, 40-mile-an-hour machine and had a stack full of tokens and put one in after the other. And my dad was encouraging me, Mikey, keep swinging it. You're going to get it. And swinging a miss, swinging a miss, swinging a miss. Scoot up, son. You can do it, Mikey. You can do it. And uh, before I made contact with that metal bat and that rubber ball, um, I was trying like heck, Danny. Uh, before I was able to actually connect on a ball, the ball actually connected with my nose. And um, I, I fell down. I had a bloody nose. And I'll never forget my dad buying me a frozen Snickers and uh, got me a big bag of ice and stopped the bleeding. And he said, son, I'm proud of you for trying. And he was like, I think we should jump in the truck and head home. And. Um, my dad recalls a story like it was yesterday. He says, no, Daddy, um, I don't want to go home. I want to get back in that cage. <laughs> and 
after jumping back in that cage, I, I finally mastered it and I hit ball after ball after ball. And that was one of the best days of my life. Um, sharing it with my father, uh, learning what it means to overcome. And um, so, yeah, I, I played a lot of sports, Danny. And baseball was something I fell in love with. And at a young age, it was a sport that I knew that I was good at. I didn't. I never dreamt that I would play in the major leagues and have a long career. But really, the only reason I ever played the game was really to make my dad proud. He was my coach. He was my mentor. He was my idol. He is. He still is my best friend. Um, I get choked up because seven years ago, my father was diagnosed with esophageal cancer, and like his little boy, he was given about a two percent chance to make it through the night. And he also is. Um, an example of a miracle. So um, my dad's everything to me. And really the only reason I played baseball was number one, I got to share it with him because he was my coach. But number two, I just wanted to make my dad proud. I know you've said that, uh, you know, you, when you were starting to get better and it was time to maybe get drafted, uh, that really your thought was that you just wanted to do it for a little bit so that you could say that you did the same thing that your dad did, which is play a little bit of minor league, <laughs> minor league baseball, right? Yeah. Great recall, Danny. Yes. That was my, that was my ambition is to be like my dad. And when I had the opportunity at age 17 to play minor league baseball for the Royals, I thought, man, you know, I want to walk in this man's footsteps. Um, I feel like my dad and I, over most of our life, we have shared one shadow I've always walked in his. I've always tried to uh, tried to mimic him and act like him. And I always wanted to be the man that, you know, he displayed before me and my siblings every day. So when I got the opportunity to go jump on a, on a one-way flight to Baseball City, Florida, <laughs> um, I jumped at it. And it was a long, arduous journey playing minor league baseball. Our paychecks after they took out room and board and you know, money for, to pay the uh, the clubhouse attendant to walk watch our, our uniforms and jock straps. You know, it left us with about seven dollars uh, cash a day to live on. So, that, those were the days, Danny. Um, but again, uh, from from that day on, I was thinking, man, if I only play a year of minor league baseball, I can say that I did what my dad did, and uh, that would have been good enough for me. Well, we've already heard about uh, perseverance and uh, toughness and. You know, believing in things, uh, but it didn't go well early on in the first couple of years of minor league ball. You're playing catcher, which obviously is is difficult anyway. Uh, but uh, you weren't hitting very much. Uh, how discouraging was it? It was discouraging uh, as can be because I I had never failed in my life, and it was the first time that I would look up at the scoreboard and see your batting average at two ten or two twenty. And um, you know, although I got a lot of encouragement from players on my team and coaches. Sweeney, man, you're, you're pounding the baseball. Uh, don't get so down on yourself. You're, you're hitting the ball harder than anybody else in the team. Those numbers that I looked up and saw in, on the scoreboard, just they crushed me. I felt like, man, um, these would deem me a failure. But my dad always taught me that you should never define your value um, as an athlete or as a man. Uh, the things that you can control are, are being a good teammate, working hard, and if you could do those better than anyone you've ever known, then you're a success. And, you know, my dad walked away from his career to drive a beer truck. And he said, Mike, I never played in the big leagues, but I know that I was a success. 
So it was hard to swallow because I felt like I was letting my family down back home. Um, but I just kept persevering. I kept saying, you know, hearing the words of my dad, be the best teammate that, that anyone's ever seen and be the hardest worker that you know. And uh, I did it day after day after day. And although it started out <laughs> a little bit bumpy, uh, my career was able to get airborne and by the grace of God and, you know, with the help of some great coaches along the way, was able to set flight and uh, I got to soar at some pretty special heights in my career. Well, you did start to hit and uh, things did start to get better, but it still is, it's always a long road, especially for a, a you know, person drafted out of, out of high school to make it, but uh, you started to put up numbers and uh, with uh, finally getting the chance, uh, you played in 1998 in the majors. And again, a little bit of a, a struggle there. When did you start yep. to feel comfortable and really think that you might just make it? Oh man, Danny, you know, I, I got my first, uh, I would say the biggest emotional or mental step in my career was after playing a ball. I had a big year in Rockford, Illinois, under the under the leadership of uh, John Miserock and Tom uh, Bergmeier. They were two of my coaches on my journey that probably had the most impact on my on my baseball career. They encouraged me. They pushed me. Uh, I felt like a Navy SEAL trying to make it through Bud's training. I mean, they were super hard on me, but they were also encouraging. And um, and after the 1994 season. I got put on the 40-man roster, and I arrived at Baseball City for, for my first big league spring training. And I'll never forget, my manager was Bob Boone. I had a poster of him <laughs> hanging on my wall as a kid while he caught for the Angels. Um, one of my teammates that I was competing uh, was, was Lance Parrish, and he was one of my favorite catchers growing up because he had such a big, broad uh, stature, and he hit the ball really well. I tried to model my game after both of those guys. And here I am sharing a locker room with them. And I'll never forget, we, we did the, the running portion. They called it gassers or, or lines and uh, suicides. And you had, to run 100, you had to run 100 yards up, a sprint, jog 70 back, and then walk 30. And we had to do 10 of them in a row. And um, I remember the guy on the team, but I, my dad always told me to be the hardest worker. And I remember running so hard, I felt like I was lapping the guys. And I, I finished each sprint um, in first place. And I went, man, okay, I could compete with these guys. You know, I'm looking around. The, the, my, my teammates were Major League All-Stars like Greg Gagne, Gary Gaetti, Wally Joyner, Mike McFarlane. These, these guys were superstars. And here I am sharing a locker room with them. So then I remember playing catch and seeing guys like Mac McFarlane and Brent Main and, you know, uh, uh, Pat Borders and Lance Parrish were throwing the ball down to second base. And I remember waiting and waiting and waiting. And then I said, okay, I'll, I'll show them. And me zipping balls down to second base, just as good as, as these major league stars. And, and then we, when batting practice came, that's when I lit up because I wasn't hitting the balls that looked like they'd been chewed on by the beast in the movie uh, <laughs> Sandlot and, and found in the back of a garage somewhere with, you know, spider webs on them. These were brand new baseballs. I'd never hit brand new baseballs in batting practice. And I remember hitting with the catchers and I was hitting balls over the bleachers in left field going, man, okay. And then lastly, <laughs> uh, I went to the weight room, Danny. I, I would watch Lance Parrish and Mike McFarlane and Brent Main and Pat Borders. I'd watch the weights that they were doing. And I said, okay, I'm going to do five pounds more than them just to know that I could do it. And after that spring training, I realized 
that the only difference between me and them was just between the between the ears. It was the mental side of the game. So when I started to kind of evolve as a player, I knew that I had the physical talent, but mentally I knew that I had to grow as a player. And I went out that year, won a batting title in the minor leagues, and even even though I got put up called up to the big leagues that year, and I limped through ninety five, six, seven, and eight. Um, to answer your question, when did I start to feel like a big leaguer? It probably was in 1999 when I got moved from catcher to first base. Right. And it was the, the moment the season ended. It's, um, you know, the end of September 1999. And I looked up and I saw the last game of the year. I ended up with a 320 batting average, 20-something home runs and 100-something RBIs. And I go, did I really do that? <laughs> I'm, I'm just a kid from Southern California that played played hard to make my dad and mom proud and holy smokes like I'm a big leaguer now and I think that was the first day Danny that I realized you know what I belong here but it, it took me parts of four or five seasons in the big leagues before before that day happened well you guys right then were had a really outstanding offensive team and I remember heading into the 2000 season there were a lot of expectations for the team because you'd scored a bunch of runs and 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 you had you know young players there Damon and Beltron and Die and yourself and you would be a good offensive team and despite some player losses over the next few years but you're had some pretty bad pitching staffs and teams you know guy you're a team guy like you said be the best teammate or anything and you're early, and in that run of years when you were putting up tremendous numbers and the team was putting up tremendous offensive numbers, how discouraging was that to, to not turn that into more success as far as wins and losses? Yeah, honestly, Danny, during that time, you know, uh, media members and critics would say, man, your, your pitching staff really struggled. And, you know, if you guys had some pitching, you would have won games. But I never looked at it that way. Uh, I remember finishing one of the, one of the years hitting 340 and mm-hmm. another year driving in 144 RBIs and after another 90 plus loss season and I remember I, I never once in my mind thought doggone it if we would have had better pitching we could have won I honestly thought man I should have hit 370 I should have driven in 160 because that would have helped us win so many more games I I, I could have played better defense at first base and helped my pitching staff so I, I was always taught as a young boy to never to never point a finger at others and instead uh, be be hard on yourself and realize that, you know, there's a lot of things that you always could do better that could have helped your team win. So I know on paper it, it probably would say that, yeah, if we had better pitching, maybe we could have won. But I, I never once as a player ever thought, oh, man, we're playing the Yankees and they have Andy Pettit and Roger Clemens and we have, you know, whoever. It was always, no, doggone it. We, we lost um, 11 to 9 today. Well, that, that that's on me and Jermaine Dye and Joe Randa and Johnny Damon and Beltron. We should have scored 12 today. I mean, that's, that's on us. So that's, I don't know. That's, I think that's a championship type that you have to have. And um, that's, that's the way I was brought up and that's how I believed. Well, obviously all of this great success offensively, you know, you're, it's a, it's an organization that's going to have to make decisions and in the end, you became the person who got the big contract. And it was yeah. the first big contract, really super big contract in Royals history in that context. Obviously, times had just changed and other people were making a lot yeah. of money for their time. And at the beginning, things went well. But how, how much pressure did you feel like that put on you when you signed that big contract? 
Well, like I said, I, I, I put a lot of pressure on myself. I was my biggest critic. And even the years that I, you know, was one of the best in the game, I'd sit down and, and even after the last out on the last game of the season, I would start grinding like, man, I gave up those 50 at bats. I could have driven in that many more. I could have hit that many home runs. I could have helped my team win that many more games. And I was always the biggest critic of myself. So when fans or media were critical of me, um, <laughs> they don't they don't know the number of times that I had tears rolling down my cheeks trying to get to bed at night because I did put so much pressure on myself. And when you sign a contract that lucrative and substantial, uh, it, it further adds. I, it did, I did put pressure on myself to to be, you know, Superman, and I realized that I could never. I can never fulfill any contract because I felt that even when you're getting paid the $7 a day that I was getting paid in rookie ball, I felt like we were overpaid. Uh, when you're getting paid after taxes in the big leagues, you know, the minimum salary was 119,000 after taxes, you pay your agent, you're clearing maybe 55,000 a year, man, we were overpaid then uh, because it's a child's game. I mean, I, I never played the game of baseball for a penny. I played it because I loved it. I love I love competing. I love pushing my teammates uh, to be their best and even better than they could have ever dreamt of. So, yeah, the, the contract did add pressure um, be, because it, it took my focus off of just simply playing the game to compete. And it, it put pressure on me because I, you know, the media would say, hey, you're the X million dollar man and you're, you signed this big contract. Now you got to do it. And I allow those thoughts and those emotions to creep into to my mind and my heart. And it wasn't until I just was able to take a step back and realize, doggone it. You know, I am overpaid. Yes. <laughs> I was overpaid as a rookie ball player um, in, in baseball city when I had to go down to Walmart to get clippers to learn to be a team barber. Cause we didn't have enough money to buy a haircut. I was, <laughs> I was overpaid then. So doggone it. Yeah. I was, I've been overpaid my whole life as a, as a baseball player. Cause you know, if you're, if you're playing baseball and getting paid a penny to play it, you're overpaid. And, um, but those were some, certainly some tough times, Danny, because, you know, the injuries, the, the pressure, the losing, those things weigh on you and, and beat you down uh, more than the fans could ever imagine. More of Danny's Reasonably Irreverent podcast after this. Kansas homeowners, betting is legal in Kansas now. Don't make a bad bet on your roofer. Call Easton Roofing, 913-257-5426. Easton Roofing, Integrity Matters. I'm here with Matt Llewellyn from the 23rd Street Brewery. And Matt, it is March Madness time and NCAA tournament time, and the defending champs are looking good. And here is a great spot to enjoy it all. Absolutely. We'll have all the TVs on KU, but all the other tournament games as well. We'll have all the hoops action you can take here. KU's looking awesome, but it's a great place to watch any tournament game here at 23rd Street Brewery. Great food, great beer, great spot. I think so. Please come join us. Love to see you. At the 23rd Street Brewery, it's at 23rd and Castle, your home for the NCAA tournament and the defending champion, Kansas Jayhawks. It's time to tell you about a great opportunity to improve your retirement outlook by using the outstanding services of 401k USA. What the experts at 401k USA bring to you is an overlay of your current 401k plan that manages it in a far more proactive and responsive way. Too many retirement plans can be restrictive, but 401k USA brings far more flexibility to your plan to capitalize on opportunities and avoid downturns. 
It's simple and easy to find out much more about all the details on taking a close look at what the friendly experts at 401k USA can do for you. You can create more retirement wealth and a richer lifestyle by visiting 401kusa.org today or by texting to 816-844-6236. That's 401kusa.org or text to 816-844-6236 to find out much more. If you'd like to join these and other great sponsors and market your business to a growing and engaged audience, contact us at danny at dannyclinkscale.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Our guest is Mike Sweeney's Royals Hall of Famer, still involved with the organization, obviously does great work in the community, has always done that. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But just before we start to get to the point where, you know, injuries creep in and struggles go, for a five-year period, I don't know if anybody in baseball hit the ball harder and hit it with more consistency and, you know, did did those type of things. What was that feeling like going to the ballpark every day, knowing that you were going to mash? Well, you know, I had a lot of help from a lot of people. You know, guys, hitting coaches like Lamar Johnson. I, I mentioned John Miserock and, and Tom Bergmeier. Uh, Jamie Quirk walked alongside of me a lot as a catching instructor and tried to help me. Uh, ironically, you know, people would ask Jamie Quirk, when I was back when I was catching, Hey, what kind of catcher is Sweeney? And Jamie goes, well, he, Oh, he could sure hit. And he said, no, no, no. What kind of catcher is he? Oh, like I said, he could sure hit. <laughs> but, uh, but Jamie Quirk's best friend, George Brett, um, he'll never realize the impact that he had on me just by his presence. Uh, growing up as a kid, I wore number five cause I wanted to be like George Brett. Um, obviously when I played for the Royals, that was not an option. But when I went on to play in Oakland, Seattle, and Philly, I wore that number five, and I tried to I tried to play the game and uh, compete at a level like George did. And to have a guy like George Brett come in with you every spring training, uh, be be in the locker room, sitting on the bench with you, it was invaluable as a player because his wealth of knowledge, his his legacy, uh, is something that you can't you can't put a number on as far as its value. But uh, but George would give me you know, little mental tips every day I was around him. I just, I, I was a sponge and I wanted to soak up as much as I can from George. So, um, you know, having guys like George really around really allowed me the ability to grow my game and, uh, and mentally to, to be at, you know, at, at the top. And even when I was, you know, like you said, Danny, I was one of the best, you know, top five and hitters in the game. Uh, George allowed me, um, some mental thing uh, growth to help me become that player. You know, one, I remember one time, Danny, in particular, uh, I was facing a, a big league closer, and it was a ninth inning, and the fans were on their feet. And I can't remember if I popped up or grounded out. But the next day, I'm sitting around the batting cage with George, and he says, hey, Sweens, I was at the game last night in the ninth inning. And he said, um, you know, how did you feel about facing, I don't know, Mariano Rivera? And, you know, crowds on their feet, they were hoping for you to come up with a hit. And I shared with them, man, I'm, I'm facing the best closer in baseball. And, uh, man, the fans were on their feet, and I, I wanted to come through. And he said, Mike, I want you to consider something. How do you think Mariano Rivera felt facing you in that situation? And he says, you're the last guy in that dugout that Mariano, Mar- Mariano Rivera wanted to face. 
So the next time that you step in that box with a game on the line, look into the eyes of that pitcher and realize that you're the last son of a, you know, George got a little <laughs> bit fired up. Maybe use some words I can't use on your show, Danny. But you're the last guy in that dugout wearing royal blue that they want to face that night in the ninth inning. So switch the mental game and put the pressure back on where it belongs on the pitcher. And I carried that, Danny, for the rest of my career. But George Brett, man, he had and still has had, you know, such a big impact on my career and my life. He is, uh, we call him King George. My kids call him Uncle George. And uh, many people just simply call him number five. But George Brett had a huge impact on my career. We just want people to know this. I mean, they can easily look up these things, but they probably wouldn't notice this aspect of it. For the four years that you hit 300 or well over 300, you walked more than you struck out, and you didn't strike out very much. Uh, that was a different deal right then. 54, 48, 71, 67, 64, 64. Amazing, amazing contact and just absolutely tremendous hitting. And you must kind of uh, scratch your head a little bit when you see some of the greats of the game who are perfectly willing to go and strike out 170 times. Yeah, ironically, Danny, just yesterday I heard an interview with uh, uh, Carlos Correa, who's getting paid, mm-hmm. you know, he's going he's gonna to be getting paid a ton of money and is regarded as one of the best in the games. And, and Mark DeRosa was interviewing him, asking him, like, what, what his swing path is and what, what he's trying to do. And, and Carlos said completely, they don't, they don't pay me to hit ground balls and I, I don't not get paid if I strike out. They, they pay me to drive the ball in the air and hit the ball out of the ballpark. And that's what I'm trying to do. And so my swing is this. And so clearly my, my vision of hitting or my mentality, I always felt that doggone, if I put wood on leather and I hit it hard, I got a chance to help my team. Mm-hmm. If I swing through balls and, or the umpire rings me up, strike three, that, that is the worst thing that you could do with your at-bat. And you're certainly not helping your team. So I was always taught, man, do whatever you have to do to hit the ball hard, drive the ball. And uh, when you strike out, that's the worst thing that you could do as a hitter. And I think, I don't know, I think the most strikeouts I had in a year was 65 or something like that. And I had over 700 plate appearances. But um, it was a different mentality from today's game. And I, I do scratch my head when I see a guy striking out 220 times and his batting average hovering around 200. But because he had 30 home runs, he, he deems his career a successful season. And my, my question is, man, the 80% of the time that you got out, how many times were strikeouts? 50%? Wow. Well, man, if you could just put, put the bat on the ball and, you know, you, those turn into more hits, turn into more runs, turns into more wins. And that's what your whole thing should be about is helping your team win, not necessarily um, increasing your value as a player because you hit so many home runs. When you were starting your stretch of great play and you – uh, had established yourself in the major leagues. You, you got married in 2002. You mentioned earlier that uh, your mom presented a, a, an example mm-hmm. of the, the kind of woman that you wanted to marry, and you ended up marrying a baseball legacy lady, Shara, who was the daughter <laughs> yeah. of Jim Nettles and the niece of Craig, Greg Nettles. How did you two get together? Well, um, ironically, uh, her father, I always joke saying that her father, Jim Nettles, uh, former major league player and played briefly in Kansas City, uh, was my first love. <laughs> he grew up with Bob Boone. Um, I mentioned earlier that was my first big league manager uh, here in San Diego, California. And uh, Jimmy, ironically, has a, a cool story of character. 
that led him to come into Kansas City that allowed me to meet my future wife. And we just celebrated 20 years last week of, of marriage. And uh, Jimmy was coaching minor league baseball in, in Texas. And there was a kid on his team that was a high round pick that was uh, disrespecting the game and disrespecting his teammates and not hustling and not showing up on time. And Jimmy Nettles benched him. So a couple of days go by and the kid's still on the bench. And the third day comes up and the GM of the team calls and says, hey, Nettles, I want so-and-so playing tonight. He's a first-round pick. He's got a lot of talent, and I want him on the field tonight. And Jimmy told him, hey, uh, sorry, but until he apologizes to his teammates and apologizes to me as a manager, I'm not putting his name in the lineup. Doggone it, Nettles, you heard me. You better put him in the lineup tonight or your butt's fired. Jimmy says, you know what? I'm not playing tonight, and I quit. So he jumped in his car and was driving from Texas to their hometown of uh, Tacoma, Washington, and was driving through Kansas City. And he called his best friend, Bob Boone. They were in each other's weddings and said, Bob, um, I just got fired and I'll be in Kansas City and you want to get together. And this was about August, the beginning of August. And Booney said, yeah. So they were hanging out the stadium. Jimmy ended up throwing a little BP that day, left-handed BP. And Booney said, hey, we only got about seven, eight weeks left in the season. If you want to stick around, we could use a left-handed arm and a guy to hit fungos and a guy to hang out in the bullpen and help out when we, when, when you can. And Jimmy Nettles says, fine, fine for sure. So through that, um, you know, Jimmy's wife, Carol, and his daughter, Shara, who later became my wife, came to visit him. And um, our first date was on the plaza at Houston's uh, Steakhouse. It's, it's no longer there. But um, uh, that night I called my best friend, and I knew that I'd met a woman like my mother. And I said, hey, I just met my wife. And here we are 20-something years later, and you know, we've been married 20 years. We're blessed with six children, ages 18 to 3. And uh, life, Danny, is a beautiful thing in my world. Certainly, certainly is. Now, after the, the contract runs out, you're not going to be a Royal anymore. And you've had, had, had to go through some injuries and, and things like that. What made you either persevere or what was the process then of trying to, you know, decide whether, you know, when you wanted to continue playing, if you wanted to continue playing, you're 34 years old, you would play uh, three more seasons. What was that like and how disappointing was it to maybe not have your body allow you to do the things that you once knew you could? Mm. Well, yes, I had, I had the heart of a lion, but my body was like a beat up, you know, 46 Ford pickup truck. You know, I, uh, I was trying to move and I was trying to uh, compete and play at a level and make my teammates better to win a championship. And I still love the game. So I, I just kept playing. And I, like I said, I put on number five on my back and, uh, got a, had had a chance to play a year in Oakland, a year and a half in Seattle, and uh, finished with the Phillies. But um, I, I I just loved to play the game, and I only played the game to win a championship. And it wasn't until my last year with the Phillies that I actually had a chance to play in my first playoff game. Um, finishing up my career, my last at bat was against our oldest Chapman in the playoffs with my my beautiful wife Shara and my parents in the stands and my agent. Uh, Seth Levinson, and, uh, you know, getting a chance to finish uh, that close to winning a World Series championship, uh, coupled with the fact that I had a growing family. And my little daughter at the time, Makara, was about four or five, and every time I went on a road trip, she would cry saying, Daddy, don't go. So I, as I just felt that that was kind of the time at 37 uh, to kind of hang my career up, my, the, my spikes, and 
move on to another chapter. But before I left Kansas City, I always dreamt that I could be like George Brett. I could start my start my career at 17 years old with the Kansas City Royals and finish it. And I'll never forget the conversation I had with Dayton after finishing out that contract. I said, Dayton, I feel like I owe you, the fans, the organization, everything. And if you'll accept me back, I'll I'll play for minimum salary. I I literally will take not a penny over. And if I'm successful, I'll I'll be great. If I'm not, release me. And And Dayton, we had a candid conversation. He said, Mike. I think it's time for you to fly on your own. It's, I think it's time for you to experience life outside of Kansas City where you can breathe a little bit, take the pressure off you. And I think it's good for the Royals to move on. So I, I always respected the way that Dayton handled things. And Dayton told me, hey, when you're done playing, you'll always have a job with the Kansas City Royals if you ever want to work in baseball. So sure enough to Dayton's word, it was best for me to fly on my own. And, you know, it ended up working out well for, for both teams. And, and both both uh, organizations and even me and, and Dayton as individuals. By the way, in that last at bat, you got a hit. Yeah, I'm sure you remember that. Yeah. You're, you're only you're only yeah. post you're only postseason at bat. You got a hit, so you hit a thousand in the postseason, my man. So that's uh, that's pretty good. That was that was a blessing, and to finish my career with a line drive base hit against the oldest Chapman in front of our home pan, hometown fans of Philly, and we had forty seven thousand, I believe, that night. It was uh, it was a dream come true, and um, I feel like I couldn't imagine finishing my career, my active career, any better, and and getting to finish it, uh, retiring a royal, getting a one day contract in Kansas City was the perfect way to finish my officially finish my career. What was it like? Was there a little bit of withdrawal uh, after baseball ended, or uh, did you just transition, and, or had it been enough of time where you had struggled a little bit and, and you got that last at bat and you got to play in the postseason? Was it, uh, I can't imagine it was ever easy to stop, but was it easier maybe? Well, it, it, actually, it was a pretty difficult transition, Danny, and, and fans out there probably don't realize this, but, you know, Ever since major league ball players were young, you know, we always did something special that, you know, gave you identity, gave you worth, gave you a reason to get out of bed. And um, when you get done playing, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a shock to the system to say the least. Even even those that would be described as grounded, uh, like me, you know, I had my faith. I was strong in my family, or strong in my faith, and had a solid family. Uh, I, I didn't realize that the the odds were revealed to me that 85%, 85% of Major League Baseball players within three years of retirement are bankrupt, chemically dependent, and divorced. And I thought, wow, you know, how, how could this be so such a high stat? And I thought, well, not me. Well, uh, about a year into retirement, I came to realize that my financial advisor had um, stolen over $8 million from me and Shara. Uh, I was trying like heck to figure out what my next move was and what I was going to do next. I was only a 37 year old guy. And then lastly, um, you know, I went to meet with my priest for spiritual direction and he asked me a simple question that revealed a lot about what was going on in my home. And he said, Mike, how's your friendship with Shara going on a scale of one to 10? What would you rate your marriage? And I told him, Oh, it's probably an eight. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm golfing a little bit. I'm speaking at, you know, schools and churches and uh, fundraisers. And I'm trying to figure out 
you know, whether I want to work with MLB Network or the Kansas City Royals, but life is good. And he said, okay, your, your penance is to go home and ask your wife the same question. Ask her what she would rate your marriage on a scale of 1 to 10. And I, I played the, uh, the game that most men do of, you know, hide and uh, cover up and reveal what you think is best. And I said, well, you know, I, I cleaned up the kitchen this morning. I got up at 4, made lunches for the kids and breakfast and left a love note for Shara. So when I get home, it's probably going to be back to a 10. But this morning, I would probably say it's an 8. And I got home, Danny, and I asked Shara a question. I said, honey, uh, you know, Father Martin asked me to ask you a question. And I want you to give me an honest answer. What would you rate our marriage? And she, through glossy eyes, filled with tears, she said, can I be honest with you? I said, please. She said, probably a two and a half. She said, honey, when you're home, you're not present. Um, you're gone trying to figure out who you are and what you're supposed to do next. And I don't feel like our we even have a marriage. Our children don't know who you are as their father. And um, I don't. I'm afraid of the road that we're on right now. Well, that 85% of major league ball players being divorced, chemically dependent, and bankrupt were staring me right in the eyes because although I didn't have a drinking or a drug problem, I never did and never will by the grace of God, um, I knew that my marriage was on the rocks and uh, the ability to provide for my family and the big D of, uh, or the big B of bankruptcy was was man a, a realization and man if, if those two things fell apart i realized that and i was just a bad month or a bad year away from checking that box of being all three of those that you know gave that statistic of 85 percent of major league ball players being bankrupt chemically dependent and divorced so uh thank thank god i had a good priest and a good lawyer <laughs> Um, the, the priest really helped walk with me and Shara and gave us some great spiritual counseling and helped our marriage, uh, start to get back on track. And thank God, uh, I found a good lawyer that was able to help us recover some of the money that was stolen from us. And, um, here we are just celebrating our, our 20th wedding anniversary last week. And I told Shara that, you know, on our anniversary this year, I think the least I've ever loved you was on our wedding day. And she said, why would you say that? And I said, well, ever since that day, I feel like my love for you and our marriage has continually grown, even through the tough times. And and she took it as a compliment and realizing that our marriage and our, our kids and our family is, is healthier today than it's ever been. So sorry for the long-winded answer, Danny, but yeah, the transition from playing to non-playing was, uh, was a difficult one. And is one that's very difficult for almost every major league athlete, every major league baseball player and every professional athlete out there. Well, typically you did come out on the other side and now obviously do uh, a whole variety of things. You've always been involved in the community. Uh, now you're obviously in, involved with the Royals. You did some TV last year and uh, people enjoyed yeah. that and people enjoyed that very much. Uh, just tell us right now what life is like. Well, life is good. Uh, we have uh, a high school senior uh, baseball player. You remember little MJ, Danny, mm -hmm. uh, coming around the K when he was a kid. And now he's a high school senior committed to play baseball at University of Texas. And we're blessed with uh, five others that range from, you know, 18 all the way down to our class of 2038, <laughs> little Ryan Burke Sweeney. So 
we have a full house. It's a joyful house. It's a solid house. And, um, you know, my favorite time of the day is, is dinner time and praying a family decade of the rosary together. It's kind of the glue that holds our family together. And, uh, yeah, honestly, I, I love working in leadership development with the Kansas City Royals, the baseball operations side. And when needed to, uh, you know, I really enjoyed filling in on the broadcast team when some of our legends were, uh, were away from the booth. And uh, I just I love being a part of the Kansas City Royals and still having the ability to keep my family and my marriage um, number one after my faith in Christ. This podcast was made possible by our great sponsors like Easton Roofing, the presenting sponsor of Kansas City Profiles at the Danny Kling Scale Reasonably Irreverent Podcast. Easton Roofing, where integrity matters. We hope you enjoyed the latest Danny Kling Scale Reasonably Irreverent Podcast. Come back soon for something fresh and new. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.